Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes, over the years, every member of the pro audio corner of the music industry has become family to me, and it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in pro audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Today, I'd like to welcome John Malenzak to our podcast. John is the new CEO and president of NAM. Welcome, John. Thanks for being part of this podcast. Thanks, Karen. It's really good to be here. Now, we met a long, long time ago um, at PreSonus. So, and I think you had just been hired when I was doing an event there. Yes, I was just hired. And I think the event, I think you were producing a big, you were helping produce a really big launch at NAM for the new speaker line. And then later you produced our big Personosphere event, right? Yeah, the launch at NAM. I think you guys had seven products you were launching. Right, it was a huge new line of stuff. It was, yeah, Kepmo played. It was a cool event. Yes. People talked about that for years. One of the things that we talk about in the podcast, and you said you listened to a couple of them, is career paths. Because a lot of people think they go to school, they become an engineer, whatever it is, but that's really not how it happens in this industry. So can you talk a little bit about your background? I understand you're a trumpet player. So... <laughs> So why don't you, um, how did you get into music to start with? And let's just start from there. I love it. You know, we didn't even plan this, but I could, I am amazingly passionate about career paths. And um, this is very exciting conversation. So for me, there was never a question in my mind that I was going to do music. I mean, I, you know, you grow up in a house and you have, you know, Mimal's piano and you're always playing and dad's always playing guitar and you're just playing music all the time. I just, I can't ever remember not playing music. So you get to like six grade and you get to pick an elective mm -hmm. and you get all these choices. You don't even look at the, it was a little green half sheet of paper, like everything in school, you print it and they cut it in half. And pick your elective. It's just like it was banned. Duh. Never a question, right? Mm -hmm. Even in elementary school, like music, is so excited to go to music class and anything musical. So it just, it was never a question. I never questioned it up through, you know, high school, playing music, playing trumpet and actually started on trombone. And then I got smart and played trumpet. <laughs> And I dabbled in French horn and that wasn't it either. But, you know, guitar, trumpet, go to college. So then it came time to go to college. What are you going to major in? Everyone's trying to figure out their major. It just I never questioned it for a second. Music ed. Do music ed. I'm going to get that teach. It was always the music ed and perform. So went right in and music ed. And then what are you going to do after college? I'm going to go get a master's in music performance. You never stopped. I mean, and there's a lot of in between there. You're learning, you're playing, you're amazing teachers. And it just keeps going. And then um, after my master's degree in music, I got to, I st immediately started a doctorate because that was it. Okay, what do I do? I'm going to have a music degree. I'm going to be a doctorate of, of a brass pipe, right? And I'm going to teach everyone to go ta-ta, tiki-ta, and it's going to be <laughs> great, right? And you know, I went down that path. And the first time I started questioning the path that had been, at that point, 23 years of nonstop, right? I had started, you know, you're in college, you, you know, you're just get on your own, you're starting to spend your own money, you're teaching lessons, you're gigging, you're, you're realizing that that plus that plus what Sally Mae gave you isn't really enough. And then at some point, Sally Mae wants it back, which they don't uh -huh. always tell you when you're 18 years old, signing <laughs> the documents, but you figure out later. Uh -huh. So then you get a point where like, I, I had saw a little flyer that said, hey, part-time band teacher. And I was like, this will be fun. So I went to this private school and I started teaching. I started there. They started a music program. They were a K-5 school that extended into K-8. And so I said, cool, I'll do this in the mornings and go to grad school in the afternoon. And then I, after a year of doing that and starting my doctorate, I Loved those kids. Loved them. I was so happy teaching at that school. And then I'd go, you know, and I'd, LSU was great. Love it. Great people. But then I would go, you know, teach a 18-year-old freshman uh, how to play, you know, how to double tongue out of the Arbins book. Or then I'd go like to this middle school and play music with these kids for the first time. And I just, I loved these kids. And it just came out to a point where the school's like, you know, the, the K-5 music teacher is retiring and would you want to be on full time? And I had to like figure it out. Do I walk away from a doctorate in trumpet? and to take a elementary school job? Or do you just go fat? And you know what? I obviously I chose teaching. 
And I don't know why. I mean, I felt like I was failing my career because I was I'd made a decision early in life. What do you want to be when you grow up, Sonny? I'm going to be this, you know? And right. you, that was the first time that I was like, this isn't the path. And it turned out to be amazing because I started gigging at that point. I started gigging more. I was in Louisiana at the time. So I was playing in New Orleans four nights a week, weddings, jazz, church gigs on Sunday mornings. You know, they had big, we had uh, lots of touring productions. So theater, everything, you know, I was playing. In fact, I was making more income playing than I was teaching, right? I was doubling my teaching style income. And then you'd made it, you know, like I, and so that was a cool time to just live the the musician life, teach lessons here, right. play here. And what, you know, you learn very quickly that nobody needs trumpet at 9.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can teach a full-time school job and still get all the gigs. Yeah. And then after several years of doing that, at some point in there, I really wanted to like do arts administration. And so I decided to go back and I ended up doing a second master's in educational leadership and got certified to be an arts admin, kind of on a whim. I'm, I'm like, I love studying. And so it was kind of like, I want something else. It was, you know, a program that for current teachers, so I could do the second master's while yeah. I was teaching. Got that. Didn't know what I was going to do with it, but it was an amazing opportunity to study adult learning theory, professional development, school leadership. It was, you know, it obviously serves me well now. Right. And then at some point, I kind of was like, okay, I've taught for six years. I've played trumpet voluntary for 7,222 weddings. Uh, you know, that, that one song. <laughs> And I'm, I'm like, okay, what's next? And of course, I'm gigging with pre-sonus people. And then that was the second time that's like the music industry. What is this thing? There's this other world. And again, pre-sonus was like, hey, you know, music ed, music technology is really cool. I had started teaching music technology course at my school because I had done recording. You know, one of the 16 jobs you have in grad school is mm -hmm. I was, I learned to record and I had my own little setup, a little pre-sonus fire pod at a, you know, a, a very legal version of Cubase uh, on my Mac that I was using and I'd, you know, pull that one door in the recital hall that if you pull hard enough opens up magically at midnight and you can go in with um, different brass quintets and solo and piano and all the different people making audition CDs and you could record them and edit them together and splice them. And I was, yeah, I like made this little business out of recording and editing people's audition um, materials. Uh -huh. And so it was, you know, I had the background. So I started teaching music tech and recording in my school and the kids loved it. And I was like telling priests on us, I'm like, this is a real thing. And your little blue boxes and your your software that works on two ply all the things previously on side. I said this would this would kill in in music ed, and you know they believed me and they hired me, to, and so we that was where I got in the industry. So you pursued trumpet for a long time educationally. Yeah. Was it really hard for you to change that career path? Um, yes and no. So it was it was hard because when you follow a career path, when you get your head saying, I want to do this thing and I'm only going to focus on it and I'm not going to think about anything else. And you invest many, many years in it. When the moment later on that you decide not to do that, there is this feeling of like, I'm a failure because I said I was going to do something. Now, what's interesting is, and so th there's that feeling, right? Mm -hmm. On the other side, and this is where I get really passionate about careers is that you realize that every skill, you know, that you you acquire to be able to be highly successful at anything allows you to be highly successful at anything. So then you get into like, wow, you know, all of that work like is hours and hours and hours a day sitting in a practice room with a metronome methodically going up two clicks, playing the same thing again, three times in a row, recording, listen back, analyzing the waveforms. Is it perfect? Good. Two clicks faster. That That's dedication. That teaches you perseverance. It teaches you focus. I mean, it, you're learning how you learn. And so none of that's for to be thrown away. Right. What was also interesting is I, I didn't expect when I left, you know, trumpet to left the trumpet doctorate, I started playing more gigs than I'd ever played before. I mean, like for First call with the symphony down in New Orleans. I was being called to play, like come in as a ringer for all of these shows. I was gigging like crazy and I couldn't figure out why. And finally, one of the guys I played with, I you know said, hey, you know, why do you always keep calling me? I'm just a student who I've given up or whatever. He's like, are you kidding? He's like, since you left school, your playing's unbelievable because you don't play like a student anymore. You play oh, like a professional. Uh -huh. And I didn't realize it, but the moment he said that, I said, wow, you're right. My entire practice routine is not for all these student ensembles and all these 
these etudes and all these things that I'm you know, supposed to do mm-hmm. for juries. It was, all right, I'm playing this show, so I got to do this routine to make sure my face, oh, I got to do a screaming lead show, so now I got to get my face in shape for this. Nope, I'm doing a very delicate classical gig this weekend, so let me do these. I was preparing for everything. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting to me. So yeah. I don't feel like I thought it was a failure the moment I made the decision, and now I realized it wasn't. Yeah. Well, you know, failures, I mean, everybody fails, right? And yeah. it seems when I talk to people for the podcast and just in general, that people want to know, like they want to know how you failed and how you kept going after you failed. That's always a really big topic because people can relate to that, right? So you saw it as a failure, but it really wasn't. But what did you take from all those years as trumpet? And, and what did you learn in that, that you've been able to bring into more it like of an administrative position or whether it's teaching or your job here or when you're at Hal Leonard, what qualities did you bring with you? Um, these are really fantastic questions. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm actually so glad we're digging into this. And I this is a direction that I'm so pleased with. I, I would absolutely, without hesitation, say that every leadership quality that I have today and, and ones I know I need to refine and keep working on and every quality that, that got me to this chair at this moment comes from being a musician. And so what did I learn? doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. It matters what comes out of your belt. Right. That's right. that's what you learn as a trumpet player, because trumpet players tend to have an ego, tend to be competitive, not generalizing. We tend to be a little uh, hot headed. Right. So you learn that very quickly. You learn the the secret to, to getting gigs all the time to be in the first call for everyone. Show up on time. Know your part. Don't be a jerk. It's that simple. You, you don't even, I didn't, I didn't say be the best ever, show everyone the best, you be on time, you know, be prepared and you treat people with respect, right? Being a first chair player, you know, the things I failed at and learned the hard way is trumpet players as not only first chair in the section, but first chair generally having the melody and carrying the ensemble in, in a lot of cases, we love to play a little faster and a little sharper than everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's a common problem with every musician and it takes a long time and most people don't ever realize it. But when you when you break through this, you, you do it for two reasons. One's because you want to kind of assert your dominance, but the other is because you want to hear yourself. Because if you're truly blending with your section and the ensemble, you can't actually hear your sound. You just are, are in, engulfed in everyone's sound. And it's one, and I'm getting very spiritual now, but it's, it's one like orchestra, it's one ensemble. And we resist that because we want to hear ourselves. So mm-hmm. we're a little faster and we're a little sharper. The moment you realize that you blend into everyone and it's not about you being one step ahead, everything unlocks. So now you talk about leadership, you know, and we talk a lot about this transition. John Malinzak is not one step ahead dragging Nam along anywhere, right? I am part of the ensemble. We have an amazing team and I, I take that with me every day. We have to learn. We are one voice. We are one company. This transition this week and in, in the next several years is not about the team following what John wants to do. It's about us learning, us transitioning. I've already interpreted we're all new. As first day, I said, we're all, we're all new. This isn't John new. Everyone in this building, we're all thinking about how we can serve our industry. I'm not the only one that gets to do this. We all get to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I would not have had that leadership mentality had I not realized after many years of why aren't my ensembles playing as good as me? That's the silliest thing ever because I was just trying to be a meathead trumpet player as a leader, dragging people along instead of settling in and having everyone go together. Yeah. So I can give you a thousand more examples like that. Of, of where being a successful musician, the breakthroughs that make you a successful musician are the same breakthroughs I think make you a successful leader. Yeah, I've mentioned this before. I competed in sports from fifth grade through college. I played three sports through high school and then played volleyball through college. I played intercollegiately and club ball. And I, what I learned through that has really helped in everything I do because you learn to work with people you don't necessarily like or get along with or that they maybe have different you know, drives, but you have to work together to achieve your goal, right? Everybody has the same goal. So you have to learn how to work with different types of people to be able to achieve that and not offend people. And it's like you were talking about with the trumpet, you can't be that one that's different because that's not helping your team achieve the goal. So it's the same kind of thing. And I know that's helped me a lot. I played viola for three years in school. I did not pick that instrument. I hated the instrument. I'd learn nothing from music, but Sports, it was the same kind of thing. It sounds like that what you learned from trumpet. 
I think so. You also learn to like choose your battles. I can't, you know, so many times, and you can you can get so specific about phrasing. You know, I want to play this melody. I did a lot of like. Luckily, is it for me, my musician career was really like lots of contract work. So I'd always play with different people. Walk in, and you're sometimes you know very little rehearsal. Walk in the gig, and you're learning people on the fly. And sure, there's a thousand times that I would have phrased something differently. I would have played mm-hmm. something differently. I would have done the tempo a little different. And you can, you know, if one person wants to feel it one way and you want to feel another way. The question, you know, early in my career, I was like, no, I was hired to be first trumpet. You're going to follow me. That's the rule. And then you learn very quickly, or took me longer in my case, but... (laughs) Learn that. Well, but here's the thing. The audience is now hearing two interpretations. So you could fight it. You could push the organ player faster. You could try to complain the two. But at some point, everyone playing beautifully together has a larger impact on the audience than mm-hmm. us trying to fight interpretations. Because you also got to realize people that aren't as close to it, most audience members don't hear all the nuances that you're obsessing right. over. Yeah. Right. We get really stuck in what we're focused about and not really what the audience has experienced, which also translates to education and students, which translates to industry and customers. Yeah. You've been an educator as well as a business person. So what are your favorite skills that this experience has brought you through going from one to the other? To be honest, it, it feels pretty similar. I mean, honestly, if you can if you can teach a fourth grader to make a sound on an instrument, or, you know, or you can teach first graders to do anything together, you know, those are, <laughs> there's a lot of patience and you, you learn very quickly, like what to say, what not to say. I think the hardest, the hardest teaching in my experience, because I was teaching high school and marching band and I was top middle school and I had elementary. Elementary was the hardest for me. And maybe it's just for me, but I talked to a lot of other teachers, they agree. Elementary is the hardest because when you have a six-year-old, a class of six-year-olds, you can't explain things to them like you can at high school or you can't reason with them. You have to you have to force them to do something beautiful together with very limited skill sets, limited vocabulary, limited attention spans. If you can figure out that, right, then any team you ever lead, you can figure out what's the least I need to say as focused as possible to inspire this group of skill sets to get to this goal. And I think that's a lot of business leadership too. Mm-hmm. It's easy when you teach adults all the time because you can just over-explain all the time and you could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours about stuff because that's what we do. But I believe if, if every human being that goes that is forced to teach kindergarten for a year of their life, the world would be a really magic. <laughs> See, a lot of times, yeah, you can talk to adults on and on and on and on, on, but how much do they actually listen to and how much do they actually like, you know, understand it? I know we're going to talk about gear. I will start listening to you at the beginning, two minutes into it. You know, if you can't catch me in the first two minutes, then I'm just done, basically. Absolutely. Adults are no, are no different. I mean, yeah. I think it's it's important. So a lot of teaching, you know, and again, and like being prepared. The thing about teaching is, you know, you're used to being on a schedule. This is like every educator that goes from the classroom into a non-education job mm-hmm. or an industry job. I experienced it. I have hired a lot of music teachers to do jobs in the industry. At my last, you know, past seven years at Howe Leonard, I, I can't even count. Almost all my hires were music teachers. If there was a pool of candidates and was a music teacher background, I always leaned to them. And, and they were always great hires, you know, because as a teacher, you're on a schedule, you're disciplined, you have to plan. Right. And so when you have music teachers, you know, you show up to meetings like, where's the agenda? What's the plan? What's the outcome? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Like we're, we're wired that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it adds a lot of value. Okay. I think you've officially been this NAM president CEO for what, three days? Three days. Three days. Three and a half at this point, maybe. Okay. But I know you you walk the show floor with with Joe. So what's um what's it been like for you so far? I know it's early on, but what's your first impression of everything? I love it. And you ask me this question next week, you'll get a different answer. You ask me in a month, ask me in twenty five years, we'll get this this very different answer. So in the first three days, you know, we all assume what it's going to be like. And I've been here for over a month, right? Working with Joe, working with all the team. We had a board meeting after this, so I saw you know a show from the other side. I saw an entire board meeting. I worked with all the staff. So we had a, you know, a thoughtful transition process. What I didn't realize and what I'm really pleasantly surprised about is the amount of the amount of decisions that fly by this desk, you know, I, I can tell that um, this is, I've, I haven't even had a chance to catch up with Joe. I'm going to catch up for our, you know, our, our next lunch date. And this is why I can't wait to tell him, but like, Joe, there's so many things all day. And I think Joe was still handling those. And then so uh-huh. Monday, May 1st, they all come to John and it's just, it is global. 
It is big and small, left, right, up and down, and it's just beautiful. It's, it's amazing how much that we do for the industry every day on both a micro and macro scale that we would never really put in a marketing email. Right. And it's really interesting because what we're what NAM does that that no one really sees that I think we all know happens on the scale is NAM's finger is on the pulse of the global industry. In mm-hmm. my first day I was hit with a kind of a big issue from another country about trade and environmental stuff. And what do we do? Okay. And then NAM staff, quick huddle. How do we do this? Here's how we're going to handle this. And then like, good. And then small issue, another thing, a music ad advocacy cry, you know, all these pieces. It is amazing how much NAM just does for our industry and how much our industry looks to NAM to do that. And I know there's a lot of buzz on the show. There's a lot of buzz about January and there's a lot of talk about, is it coming back? Is it not? I'm not going all that stuff. I'm happy to get into all that and it's all very important. I'm not trying to belittle that piece of it. Mm -hmm. I think what people don't realize is how much NAM is just truly part of our industry and how much opportunity there is every day and also responsibility. Like I'm very careful. Like in the first few days, I'm like, all right, like let's think about this. How would we do this? What have we done in the past? It's a lot and it's really, really cool. How was it? I know that you and Joe worked together for a while in the whole handoff thing. So how was that? And what did you learn from Joe that maybe you didn't know before you took over this role? You know, the handoff process and working with Joe was about as organic and natural as anything could be. When I finally accepted the job, Joe was told, I forget, like a week or so, there was a time when Joe was finally told who it was. And then like, I wanted to text Joe and like he said he wanted to tell we didn't we didn't talk to each other. I guess we were nervous like who's can reach out first. There was a lot of respect for like my last day at Hal Leonard. So we really and like everyone said like I put a stake in the ground and like Nam was very careful. But we agreed to talk the end of my last day at Hal Leonard, right? We were uh-huh. very respectful about that transition. And I just cannot say enough how respectful our industry is about each other. And then we got on the phone and the first thing Joe said is like, well, when you do something once every 22 years, you don't really have a plan for doing it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, Joe, and I said, what did we, we, but we just laughed and talked. And from there, we, we never sat down and said, okay, they're going to do this and we're going to hand you this. It was just a text, a phone call, an email, send this. I got in the office the first day, had no idea. Joe walks around. I felt like I'd been here for 10 years. We popped in meetings together. We then, I left the office. I went and met someone. He would took a call. It was just organic and it was really good. And, you know, the, you, so you learn it, the process was great. Even at the show, you know, we had a schedule of where we're going to be together, where we're not, but we didn't really plan out. And the only thing we planned out at the show is like, Joe, what color suit are you wearing? Each day? <laughs> the worst thing that happens is we both show up and like 98% match. That's going to look really creepy. <laughs> No, he's like, yeah, agreed. Okay, I, I'm doing black on Thursday and gray on Friday. That's the only, literally the only detail we talked about was not matching really when we walk around. But it was just organic. It was really organic. And so what I took from Joe and what really stuck with me in the process is, you know, we are we have to be real the whole time. Like I've known Joe from seeing him at NAM, seeing mm-hmm. him speak. I've known Joe from being at fly-ins and having the opportunity to just walk around with him. And I've, you know, I've, Joe and I have become, you know, friends over the years. And we usually at Midwest every year, we'd always sit down for coffee. So we've had, you know, a, a casual relationship for a while and I've known him outside. But knowing Joe inside of this office, it's still Joe. And it shows that a good leader has to be real. There is no there is no costume you put on. You have to be yourself. You have to be authentic. And it helped me realize that, you know, I need to be me. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be Joe. I need to be John. And I it helped me realize that I don't have to feel pressure to act a certain way. I need to act like me. I need to be authentic at all times, right? right? And I need to treat people right, whether I'm at this desk, whether it's between the hours of nine and five or 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. It doesn't matter. You're you and you do right for the industry all the time. Yeah. Applying for this job, I mean, it was a big search, right? I think it would be scary to apply for this job. So why did you, what did you think you could bring to it? You know, just full disclosure, I, when I saw the announcement that, you know, Joe had announced his retirement publicly, it was probably a year and a half. It was a long search. And I saw it and I was like, I remember first thing like, wow, somebody's in for it. And <laughs> my first thought was not, ooh, let me apply at all. And several people in the industry started asking me if I was going to apply. 
And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, and I remember saying at one point, I'm like, I need Joe to retire like in 10 years. Give me 10 more years and then I'll feel ready to really take this on. But as as more people talk to me and as it got a little closer and as it was really announced that there's an application process and Russell Reynolds is the firm and you have enough people had pushed me that I really had to sit down and say, John, could you do this? Like, I, It's not great to say I wasn't confident at the time, but it's a very big role. And so I, I was not immediately, yes, I'm right for this. And so after talking to people and sitting down and saying, you know what? I could do this. I, I, I'm going to put myself in. Because the other thing is I believe in, you don't just, you don't apply for a job like this unless you have, you truly believe that you could do it. You don't right. take an audition unless you think you could win the job. Otherwise, I think you're wasting your time and other people's time. So I needed to get there personally, got there and applied. And then it was like, what happens now, you know? And then it was a process. It's probably nine months, different phone calls. And then it really accelerated the past three months of the process with full committee. There was a committee, right? A third mm-hmm. so right. Full committee interview. But every step of the process, I... I asked about as many questions as they asked because, you know, it's important to me to not go into something naive and the process felt organic. And I remember what was really interesting about this industry, the first full interview after, you know, different one-offs and things they do with the full committee. We did like a full committee Zoom. Mm -hmm. And I left that hour of questioning. They asked me questions about my past that I had forgotten, truly. Like things I'm like, how did they know that? Not things that were in my resume, not things that I'd written in my cover letter or talked about previously. It's clear that they had done their homework. Mm-hmm. And I remember my wife's like, how'd it go? And I was like, well, I feel seen. They know <laughs> they know every quality and flaw that I have, hands down. So I actually, that was the first time that I completely got settled. I walked into that interview so nervous. I left so comfortable and not because I felt like I crushed it. In fact, I felt like it was all over. I said, well, they, they know what I have, what I don't have. They know this experience. I don't have this experience. I get it. But I said, well, if, if whoever they pick, they know exactly what they're looking for mm-hmm. and exactly what they're going to get because they are really focused. And as we started talking more, so we got to the end. And I mean, again, it was a meeting, then another meeting, then another meeting. And I now know that each meeting was narrowing down the field. You know, at the time, I didn't know and I didn't really want to know, right? Because as, as you what you learn as a musician is you're you're competing with your best self, not with every other trumpet player in the room. So that's what matters. I mean, so right. you take that in the same same vein. Yeah. And it got down to the end. And again, when I finally got the call that said you've been selected, it was not like, all right, when do I start? It was like, okay. Talked to my wife all weekend, called my three very close confidants that I've been working with throughout the process. Had to be careful and thoughtful. And I said, you know what, this this is right. That's how we got here. At the NAM at the Marriott pool party that NAM has, I was not in the pool aspect of it. I was up doing my experiment party and someone came up to me and said, do you know who the new NAM person is? And I said, yeah, it's John Malenzak. Do you know who he is? And I said, yeah. And you were, you and Joe happened to be down at the pool and I pointed you out and he said, he's so young. And I came in, I told you that. So I think, you know, most people have forgotten that Joe was hired, what, 20, 25 years ago? Joe was also 39 when he was hired. Me and Joe are the same age at the starting points. Yeah. So what do you, what's the benefit of being your age and starting this? Good question. You know, I, I think the benefits really are there's, there's a certain amount of experiences and understanding in the industry that you have to have as a basis for success. So, you know, you're not going to hire a 25 year old. I get that. Right. But there's also, you know, each CEO in NAM's history. Remember, I am number four in 77 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They've all lasted over 20 years and each one was this age. And what it's created is a, here's, a perspective that understands and has, and for me personally, I am everything I am because of the industry, because Mm -hmm. of NAM shows, because of the support I've gotten through networking in this industry. I have a deep appreciation and respect for this industry and how we function and what we do and our sense of community. But I also have a 20-year outlook. I, I I see, I try, I mean, I'm of the age where I feel like I'm doing a worse and worse job every day, but I try to stay connected to the, the next generation. Mm-hmm. I see what the future customer is and I'm, you know, so you set a vision for the future based on the customers that are coming up and the customers that are coming right. after them. So it gives you a perspective to then think 25 years out. And everything we do. And I think that's a really good benefit. Yeah. Talking high level leadership skills. So you are younger. Your board of directors must be older than you. Mm -hmm. Is that ever an issue? Is there any 
tricky power dynamics dealing with them? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, we have, NAM has really good structures in place that, you know, again, it's it's very much a team and a board. So we have our board, we just had our full board meeting. We have our executive committee, right, that, that really functions year round as a, an executive leadership arm of the board. And we meet with them regularly. Mm-hmm. And I think there are, I mean, there's some younger folks on the board, but they're all older than me. For me personally, I've been put in a position, again, back as a musician, I've been leading people older than me since my freshman year of college when I was appointed first chair of the wind ensemble and all the juniors and seniors were like, who is this guy? Why? You know, (laughs) and you learn very quickly that it's not because you've been there the longest, because you have the most years, because you have the most experience and probably not because you're the best at everything, but you learn because I think there's some natural leadership stuff. They're willing to listen people and they feel heard and the group moves further with you at the helm. And I think once people feel that they're all comfortable. Mm -hmm. So as far as like power dynamics, I don't feel it. Every single one of my new direct reports here at NAM is older than me. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't bother me. And what I'm really, and it actually, I've not felt any issues at all. Right. I, I feel supported, but I also have learned to approach it in a way that like, I don't come in apologetic for my age, but I also don't come in, you know, assuming just because I have a title and I sit in a different place in the building that I know more or have more experience. I don't think that at all. You know, mm-hmm. we each have a role to play. Everyone has a very valuable role. And I know I have a lot to learn. And we, you know, and the executive committee and the folks around me, I've, I ask a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions. And people appreciate that. Yeah. So you've always been heavily involved in NAM's advocacy efforts. Is there any specific aspect that you're personally passionate about with that? You know, it's funny. I've, I've done a lot of NAM advocacy and I've always loved, you know, the, the fly-ins in D.C. And I've, I've, I've been at both in Louisiana and Massachusetts. I was the advocacy chair for the state and I would take people to the state house and do like a mini fly-in or drive mm-hmm. So if you asked my question five years ago, I'd say it was that. But today we're doing something really great with careers now. It's so funny you started with careers. That's why I was like, oh my gosh, because we, you know, part of NAM's mission is to promote the pleasures and benefits of making music. That's the second part of the mission. Uh And, you know, over time, we've done a lot of public, you know, perception pieces and things we can do. What we're focused on now is in what you're going to see later this year is a career focus. And this is something the foundation's working on, our advocacy and market development team's working on. I'm incredibly passionate about. You know, one thing I'm super passionate about now is to strengthen the music products industry, the first part of our mission, and to promote the pleasure benefits. I dream of a world in which a senior in high school can go to their parents and say, mom, dad, I figured out what I'm going to major in college. Great. What? Music. And I want those parents to say, yes, that's great. Because today they probably say, oh my God, how long are you going to be on my insurance and living in my basement? That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. But if you think about it, there, there's if, if that child says, I want to study psychology or I want to study mass communications or there, there's other degree fields where parents are like, okay, great. That's a good basis for anything in life. Right. Music is a good basis for anything in life. Let's play this clip. Studying anything <laughs> in music is a vital basis for anything you want to do in life. I know it. We know it. So if we could, allow, we could make that conversation happen over time, that would be a win. If 20 years from now, if you can say, John did anything. Students know that they can go learn and study music. Adults know that they can go take guitar lessons or ukulele lessons or sing and is a valuable skill for anything they want to do in life. Let's get there. And we're doing a lot of cool stuff. We have, you know, just from like careers and music brochures that we're working on to websites, working with all of our partners on it, going to the National Guidance Counselor Association Conference, unveiling the careers in music, educating them on the value, working with higher ed. And all of this is, is, is in the works. That's a really important piece of advocacy. And I think something that NAM can do really, really effectively mm-hmm. that will truly change the world. So we were just on an experiment call and I had some new younger kids on the call. Then it was like their first time at NAM. And in the experiment group, there's really a wide variety of ages and skill levels. So we have some kids that are just entering the industry. We have some that are mid-level. We have manufacturers, we have engineers, producers, we have some people who are retired. And the question that one of them asked, Haroon, when he asked what can I do? What did you do that I should do? What can I do differently? I'm 26. What should I be doing? I thought that was, he's done with school, but that was an important question for him. And everybody had an answer for him. And I think 
a lot of the younger people coming into the industry don't know what they should be doing, whether it's networking or showing up on time or, you know, any of those basic skill things. And I think that there isn't enough knowledge, base knowledge for them. They don't get that yet. So I don't know if there's a way to educate them on that aspect of it. And being in a situation where you can talk to someone like Lenise Bent, you know, and talk about her engineering career or John Nallen, who, you know, toured with a studio manager with Neil Young. And just, we need to provide more opportunities, I think, for the young people coming into the industry to talk to those kind of people. I totally agree. When he asked that question, I thought it was incredibly profound. And my first response that I wanted to give him was say, well, ask that question. The fact that you're asking the question is is really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. The fact that he knows to ask the question. You know, I think a lot about, you know, things that people have told me in the past, whether it was professors or other business mentors or bosses or colleagues, and some things make sense and some things you don't. You know, it's, it's easy to dismiss what doesn't make sense at the time. And when you're young in your career, you might not have the lived experiences to attach a piece of advice to, to really have it connect. So my advice is always, and I've learned this the hard way, anytime you get a piece of information, if it doesn't make sense in the time, put it in the bank, put it in the bank, because it will make sense later. I, I just, I believe every, everything that comes at us has value. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have value at the time, you're just missing the other piece to the context of where the value is. Do not dismiss it. Put it in the bank. And again, right now, I'm having a lot of information thrown out. People are like, are you drinking from a fire hose? Are you surviving? How are you handling <laughs> it all? I'm putting it in the bank. I, have, uh-huh. I mean, I'm writing, I'm taking notes, but it's all going in the bank because I know everything I'm getting now. If it doesn't make sense, that's okay. I'm going to save it because I'll need to access that file later. You know, I think for young people today, it goes back to like what I felt. This idea that, you know, like these career days that schools do and these things like, what are you going to, what do you, the question, what are you going to be when you grow up? Can we say I'm going to be a good human that does right by people and makes music and connects with people and that's, that's enough? The idea that you have to pick a path, you know, you see your artists, one of the, the guys I talk to on the, you know, what do you do? Well, I do a little this, I do a little that, I do a little this. That's great. No one shows up for a career day in, in, in high school and says, well, I want to do a little bit of, you know, writing music for, for some seeing stuff. And then I'm going to do a little bit of producing. I'm going to do a little bit of event speaking. I'm going to network over here. I'm going to tour with this person. No one says that. But how many people end up doing it? We need to just um, normalize being okay with doing multiple jobs in the industry through networking and understand that that's that's a value, valuable, viable career path. And and things have changed. Things have changed. It's not, you don't choose a career, get one job and stay there till you retire. You only get two jobs. I mean, it's things are changing all the time. And so with my kids, well, especially my youngest kid, it was like, yeah, you know, he's a baker and he's been baking for four years, five years. But now he's thinking, eh, I think maybe I want to go into brewing beer. Okay. You're 26. Sure. Yeah. You know, and it's so different than like when I was a kid, you know, you just, you're supposed to choose one thing. And I think that society needs to catch up with that and realize that it's okay for these kids in their twenties to change their minds and not feel bad about, you know, pursuing different things, maybe than the, what they studied. hundred percent. It's actually funny, Nam, this is the first job I've ever applied for. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Yeah. I used to, yeah. and I ruined the street because every, every job I've got, even when I taught, I was, you know, I, I, I guess I applied for that like part-time teacher role, mm-hmm. but then they're like, John, let's let's build a new role they actually you know pushed the elementary teacher out and said we want you to do full-time in this area so Priestland has created a position for me how Leonard created three different positions is every every promotion I got was a position that was created for me uh-huh. so this is the first I was you know was joking like I've never had to write a cover letter and a resume to apply for a job and even interview for a job this is the first time that I've had to do that in my professional yeah. career yeah it's pretty amazing Okay, let's uh, let's stop talking about Nam. Let's talk about you. So one of the things I talk a lot about in my different podcasts is leading a balanced life, work-life balance. Mm. So you're new here, but you know you've been in the industry for a long time. Do you have a work-life balance, and if so, how do you achieve that? Really amazing. Um, like all of us, you know, COVID threw that off. I, you know, I don't remember what I did pre-COVID, but I, I do know that there was a year. I mean, being a music education and technology online learning expert in March of 2020 is a very interesting place to be because suddenly everyone wanted that knowledge. So I I failed miserably at work-life balance for a year because I was working 24-7, 365. You know, it was crazy. But it's something I've really gotten better at. So for me, I am an early riser. I am a I want to be 
active two hours before I walk in. Mm-hmm. And and you think now is especially in a in a very you know prominent leadership position. When I walk in the door, there's an amazing woman named Jules, and she greets me with the biggest smile, and we talk for about three to five minutes a day. She deserves my best, not oh I got my coffee, <laughs> blah blah. blah. <laughs> That's not what that's not what anyone deserves. So yeah. I'm up 5:45 a.m. One hour workout. Make my coffee for 10 minutes. I have an obsessive coffee ritual. I want to hand grind the beans. I want to press it. I the whole thing, and I want to show up having accomplished something. Gives me energy. I I do pick a time at night and just turn it off because if you don't, you just won't. You know, so you get through the day. End of my day, I'm very much a make my list for tomorrow because mm-hmm. otherwise it keeps going in your head. Mm-hmm. So you end your day, you build in time to make sure you know, look at your calendar for tomorrow, feel settled, and then get home, have a little me time, do a quick email pass for fires, and then then you shut it off. And so that's that's my routine. Exercise, focus, be on when you're on, and then take the time for you. Be off when you're re-energizing yourself. Mm-hmm. Everyone in this role that I'm in now needs me at 100%. So that's where my head's at now. Ask me in a year, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Sailing. Do you have a sailboat? I got into boating. I've been a boater a long time, but I really got obsessed with it. That was sort of my John get something else in your life out of COVID. Uh, no, I, I I charter and I diff part of different clubs. I had a great club in Boston where you're it's kind of a membership. You just go mm-hmm. and sign out a boat and take it out in the harbor. So I um, have a couple different options here. One of these weekends, I'll go down to San Diego or up to Oceanside Harbor or maybe Del Mar and visit and see what's yeah. out there. Um, but I do. I like to I like to be on the water. I teach sailing sometimes for fun. I don't know how much time I'll have for that now, but it's just an opportunity to still be an educator, take people out and show them something that brings them a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. So I like to I like to get on the water. It's something that my wife does with me. It's something that you, you, when you have access to a boat and water, you get a lot of friends really yeah. fast, <laughs> which is great. Again, like it's you know, there's some people that, you know, I get it. Like I always, if I'm in a group, I'm kind of annoyed if I'm not in charge. I mean, because one of those people and I have to tone it back, but you know, I like entertaining. I like taking care of people. So being on a boat and having guests and having them come on and making them feel safe and having them, you know, pull some lines and grind some winches and raise the sails. Mm-hmm. Everyone loves that yeah. stuff. So I uh, made a personal goal at the end of last year to get my captain's license. And so I got it in... September, I think, or October, I think the final test. So I'm actually a, a licensed Coast Guard captain. Very cool. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah. And so it's just a fun piece. It gives, but it's also an opportunity to learn. So like nerding out, if I'm like totally decompressing, I'm watching, you know, America Cup racing videos or I'm watching, you know, it's, it's something to learn mm-hmm. too. I'm a nonfiction reader anyway. So that's, that's my happy place. Watching boats, learning about different things, looking at sail trim nerd webinars, <laughs> which gets really nerdy about them. Really nerdy. Very scientific. Uh-huh. That's pretty funny. I swim and I try to go to Hawaii once a year. It's about being on the, it's all about water for me. And when I swim or if I'm out paddleboarding, it's, Either I solve problems I'm having with work or I don't think about work at all. So it's like one or the other. Or, I, you know, if I'm swimming in a pool and counting laps, right? So I'm just counting. But then it's amazing how you can relax so much, which kind of opens up your brain. And I don't know if it's a water thing. You know, I'm sure you experience the same kind of thing sailing. It just takes your mind off of some things, but and just opens it and relaxes you so much. I love that aspect of it. Same, and same for running to me. Like I like longer distance running because uh-huh. once you get past like mile five and you really get time for your body to like truly transition into like, you know, burning fat for energy and you you burn off all the quick switch, twi- quick twitch muscles uh-huh. and endorphins are fully flowing and you're sweating. Like then you get into this like euphoric state. Then you can solve all the world's problems. And I usually come back wanting to like donate to some charity because you're like, I love everything. <laughs> It's a good mental state to be in and water. and I mean, it's the same thing. Like for sailing for me too, is it's not like you're always thinking about something and I have trouble. I do have trouble shutting, turning it off, but I can redirect Mm -hmm. it. So if I can be on like, if all I'm thinking about is, is that sail shape right to go down this beautiful like ocean and all of a sudden like your, your mind frees up and then you're like, aha, that's the idea I was trying to solve. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. What kind of music are you listening to right now? 
Well, since I'm like really working out really hard every morning, a lot of hip hop is a lot of high energy hip hop, 90s, earliest 2000. Yeah. I totally get that. That's my, that's my go-to that. And then if I'm like flying in a long plane, I'll put on a Broadway musical and listen to the whole thing as I just, I'll go all over the place. If you did really listen to any of my podcasts, you'll, you know that, um, community and this pro audio community really means a lot to me. And that's really one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I want everybody to know how very cool the people in this industry are. So my question for you is, what does community mean to you? Yeah. Our, and well, you learn very quickly that, again, this is when I joined pre right? You learn very quickly that music or industry is a community, not really an industry mm-hmm. or a supply chain or a channel. It is a community. I mean, we learned that at the NAM show. Right. I mean, that's obviously not always bring everything back to NAM. Geez, but um, you know, you do learn at the NAM show. But we we are a community, and we depend on each other. And I think we are humans before we are our job titles. Mm-hmm. We always have to remember that. And I think so. As far as the community we serve, I mean, not only one of the really great things about music, and I, I witness it and experience it on the experiment calls I've been on, and you you witness experience it in different areas of music. That we are a comp- we are a competitive industry, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We will give our left arms to prop each other up at the same time. And that's what's really, really cool about our industry. Mm-hmm. I think that's what community is about. We're all competing. We all want to make the hits and we all want to, you know, get to whatever success looks like for us. But we are the people in the race. I mean, the music industry are the people that are finishing the marathon in record time, but will stop to help carry that person who yeah. just had like a really bad cramp across the finish line, even yeah. if it means not getting their PR. That's the, that person is is our community. Yeah, I totally agree. What community do you have around you and uh, that supports you and inspires you in the, the music world? Yeah, you know, you're so good at this. You should, you should, you should be someone that brings the community together and host a podcast. Have you really <laughs> thought about that, Karen? All the questions. It's something that I thought a lot about because I recognize in this new role that my my community might shift. Mm-hmm. It's why I'm really like I love being on the experiment calls and I love having these conversations. And so I'm I'm really in a in a I'm in a transition place trying to actively find who is my best community in this role. So anyone watching um, you know <laughs> invite me to join your community, you know? <laughs> And I'll tell you, like, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring it out. I'm being careful and cautious and thoughtful about a lot of things right now. You know, I now, whether I like it or not, when I open my mouth, it represents Nam. Right. And I want to be very, very respectful of that and understanding. So, you know, communities and friend groups and circles of, of networks that I met in before at a executive leadership role or even all the other roles I've had working my way from like, you know, all the way up to basically every role in the industry. I think I've had probably every title you can have from coordinator to manager to system manager to vice president. You, know, you have all of them. You know, you realize that now what you say brings a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And so who I, I'm trying to figure out my place in, in various circles where people expect me to speak on behalf of the industry, mm-hmm. where I can speak as John, who are your friends that you can call and vent to? Right. Right. Like right. we all need yeah. those people. So it's a really good question. I'm, I'm really carefully evaluating who all those folks are really to make sure that I understand what I need to add or not add to every community that I'm in. Right. So I'll tell you in a year because I'm trying okay. to find my place in a lot of ways. Okay. One of the producers wants me to um, find out what hip hop artists you listen to. Yeah, we can go. I'll tell you what. Let's just let's see what pops up because I I do this thing where I like pull up one of my favorite things to do in presentations is like what's the last thing you listen to. So uh-huh. yeah, I mean this is like Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, uh, Lil Wayne, Carter Four uh, is an album I'm really into. Uh, a lot of Jay Z, uh, some Wu Tang. What else do we got? Um, Kendrick Lamar's on, oh, yep. Okay. Tupac. I'm, you know, I feel like this West Coast thing now. So I'm like really getting like, (laughs) I gotta like really like represent. So that's another one. Mob Deep. Yeah. DMX, though the barking I can only take sometimes, you know. But yeah. So that's kind of my, my high energy playlist. Okay. For someone who's entering the industry today who wants to take a similar path as you, maybe be you in 20 years, what advice do you have for them? 
you know, I never, I never set out again. I was on a path to play trumpet. The second I broke that path, the rest of the path was not prescribed. There was a moment in my life that I was like, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to doors open, stay focused on the absolute ultimate end goal, the end customer. What made me successful as an educator is because all I cared about is those students. Anything else that got in the way, I would get frustrated with because I cared about the students, their outcomes. And that actually matters because when the students are happy and successful, the parents are happy. When the parents are happy, the administration's happy. The administration's happy. They're treating you. It all it all trickles up in that way. So again, as a, as a marketer and a, and a leader in the music industry, the music maker, you know, um, I just was just hyper-focused on the music maker and even all my different jobs. I'm like, and even at, even at NAMM, I, I, I'm, I'm asking questions like, okay, who does that serve? What customer? Who at the NAMM show? What do they do? How do we know they do it? Like, that's what I'm really hyper-focused on. Because mm-hmm. if we understand who we're serving, everything else in line matters. So my advice would be, it's so easy to kind of get hung up in some of the administrative pieces. It's easy to kind of be, you know, sucked into different different areas and different struggles or different focuses. It's all valuable, but if you don't have your eye on the prize, if you don't know the end goal and the end outcome and you're not connected to that, you're you're gonna get lost. And that's where I find people get lost. Yeah. You just get lost in all the other stuff. And so you can't always see where your end goal is or you forget what your end goal is. So you do have to be hyper focused for that. Yeah, and I think I did say hyper focus, right? Because it is. It's hard because there's way more of that other stuff. And you yeah. just have to like Yeah. Sort yeah. through it sometimes. Yeah. Okay, last question. So my last question on all my podcasts. I'm coming to see you. We're gonna go have a meal, whatever kind you want. So I don't like making decisions if I'm not working. So I want to know where we're going, what we're eating, what kind of music we're listening to, and what we're talking about. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm a seafood fanatic. I want to go to a place where we're sitting outside, we're looking at the beach of the ocean. The vibe has to be good. Hopefully live music. I mean, in that type of vibe, I mean, jazz or maybe a, um, you know, a, a, a someone on an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. singing their music, uh-huh. but at the right volume level, <laughs> that type of vibe, you know, like uh-huh. all the seafood. I hope you don't have a shellfish allergy because you're in big trouble for this. <laughs> Yeah, and this is gonna. I mean, you know, and just I think I like seafood because it feels organic. It feels like mm-hmm. something I want to see where it came from. There's the ocean, and I think we're talking about. I I like the conversation about work life balance and how we find joy amongst all the things we do, especially with you, because you are someone that has a lot of projects and you're involved in a lot of pieces, but you. You weave them all to- together for a purpose, which is building the community. And you do that really well. So we would really dive into all the different areas that we do and how it all comes back to community. And then by the end, after several drinks, I usually like to start with a cocktail and then, then have the wine. Mm-hmm. But Perfect. we could go with and then, no, you know. No, I like it that way. Maybe, and I'm not much of a sweet drink at all, but I mean, I'm a sucker from a limoncello after a long meal or sometimes a cognac if I'm really like, I'm really Ubering home. But um <laughs> We'd end and we would we would end feeling like we invented something new that's going to revolutionize the world. And we might actually forget what that is the next day. But we're going to we're going to leave feeling so excited about whatever we just came up with. It's going to be that type of conversation. I love that. I love that. Okay, we'll have to do that soon. I'm I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been fun getting to know you more. Well, thank you for having me. It's it's really an honor. I was very excited to, you know, Karen, I'll say that when when the when the job's announced and you get a thousand phone calls and emails and texts and stuff, like you're someone that rose to the top, stood out engaged me because what you did is you invited me to your community like in an email the next day mm-hmm. right and i think yeah. you waited exactly one day because uh-huh. you're, you're, you're doing and you invited me to just start and you even said can i add you to this list can i start engaging in this community you didn't text me about something you need right now because 85 other people did you didn't act like we were best friends forever and now suddenly i can do something for you you invited me to a bigger community and and, and really helped you helped me a lot already and so it's and i'm honored to be here. I really am. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests and subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie Lamont. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.